bringing ai to life hello and welcome to our talk on ai in healthcare in this session we speak with medical practitioners healthcare experts and ai enthusiasts to bring you a ground level understanding of how they have incorporated technology to improve access to quality healthcare and make a real difference to their communities Good afternoon everyone. My name is Chiranjeev. I am the Chief Commercial Officer at Cure.ai and it's a pleasure to have with me our next guest for our podcast, uh, Dr. Neil Roy. Uh Dr. Neil Roy is the head of emergency medicine at LifeBridge Health and maybe I'll start uh by asking him to introduce himself to our audience. Yeah, thank you, Chiranjeev. Uh, my name is Neil Roy. I oversee emergency services, which is the ER and urgent care and observation units at a couple of facilities at LifeBridge Health, namely Sinai, Northwest, and Grace. And I manage the emergency medicine physicians. In the States, we have emergency medicine in which we take care of all of our um, critically ill patients that come in through our ER. And um, we frequently utilize CT scans and plain film imaging to identify um, which patients are sick and who needs to be taken care of quickly and promptly. And it's one of the few places in the hospital, um, secondary to the ICU, where um, minutes um, really matter in terms of outcomes and the quality of care that you can provide. So, Dr. Neil, uh, I know we usually connect when it's pretty early in the morning for you. So give, give me an insight and our audience insight on what does your typical day look like? Sure. Um, so the one of the beauties and curses of emergency medicine is um, it's shift work. So on a given day, um, we work shifts that go from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., and then 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, and there's some mid-shifts in between, depending on when our patients arrive. Um, our busiest times in the emergency room is typically from like 2 or 3 p.m. to like 10, 11 at night. So you and I tend to talk very early in the morning because I'll wake up at like 5 or 6, do all of my errands for the day and administrative tasks before 11 or 12, and then go in for the day to be in by 2 or 3. Um, and it's good in that I'll have random Wednesdays off or like a Thursday off. It's bad because this past weekend was a holiday weekend in the States, and um, I was working all weekend. Um, and I don't mind that. I, I love our job. And I think um, we're very lucky to be um, providing a service that's so valuable um, for our communities and the people that we take care of. Great. So as you said, you know, it can be in shifts. And I can imagine there is also a very low predictability to the kind of cases you see, right? So what, what are the most common conditions that people come to your hospital with in, into the ER? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's nice because... Um, you know, when initially you're trying to decide what type of specialty to choose, um, one of the decision trees is, do you like a linear workflow where your patients essentially come one after the other and you have a list of patients to see and then you see them in order versus do you have a, um, a non-linear workflow where patients just show up and they have different presenting complaints and you have to be ready for what walks through the door. Um, I found that a non-linear workflow was far more exciting and interesting and kept me awake and engaged far more so than having a list of 20 patients to see and just knocking them out. Um, and that's typically our workflow in the ER. 
in that you generally don't have a clear cut idea of um, what's going to come through the day, um, the door at any given time. Now, um, that being said, we do have data on what the predominant complaints are, um, and it varies seasonally. We tend to see a lot of abdominal pain in the ER, that people that come in with appendicitis, gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea, um, and then during se um, seasonally, we'll see a lot of upper respiratory infections as well. And as you're aware, we're seeing a lot of COVID, um, and that you'll see COVID, flu, pneumonia, um, and you'll see that typically in the fall and winter. And the summer, you'll see sports injuries. You know, kids will break their wrists and their arms or their legs, and um, you'll have that spectrum. It also varies geographically. In, in some parts of the country, you'll see a higher incidence of certain cases. So in populations or places where you have an older population, um, in emergency medicine, you'll see a lot more patients that come in with complaints related to the extremes of age. Very interesting. And I, I caught on to some of the terms you mentioned. You know, you don't like the fact that you have a list and knock them out. And uh, yeah. one interesting fact that uh, I learned uh, when I started interacting with you is apart from being a physician uh, at, at LifeBridge, you're also the ringside physician for combative sports for the Maryland State Athletic Commission. Right, right. Which means you're probably seeing some very serious head injuries and other injuries that happen in, in the field. So could you walk us through what happens on and off the field in such cases? Sure, sure. So um, I, my personal background is in high school and I did a lot of wrestling, which is a grappling sport. And obviously it's very popular in India as well. And we started, I wrestled a little bit in college as part of a club. And then um, after high school, I started doing um, what's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and some mixed martial arts. And that kind of led me to an interest in um, actual combat sports, namely boxing and wrestling and mixed martial arts. And now I'm part of the Maryland State Athletic Commission. And whenever there's an event in Maryland, um, I'm one of the physicians at the ringside. And it's really important because I understand the types of injuries that people can typically see. And when a fight has to be stopped, and you'll typically see this in a boxing fight, where you have one really good boxer paired up against someone that's not necessarily as good, and, and one person is showing signs of not being able to defend themselves, it's my job to really say, this fight needs to stop. So there we'll see a lot of head injuries. We'll see concussions, facial fractures, fairly bad lacerations. Occasionally, we'll even see things like liver lacerations or internal abdominal trauma. Um, and it's a lot of, it's a, it's a fun sport to do. Um, and it's a fun sport to be a physician on the ring side of because you can be there and understand the sport and understand the injuries that you're seeing um, on a day-to-day -day basis and be able to provide the care they need. Um, so I find it's very satisfying, very rewarding. And um, the key to longevity in any field of medicine is variety in your workflow and your ability to appreciate the strengths of, of each component of medicine. And that really lends itself to building resiliency uh, amongst physicians. Um, you see a lot of physician burnout, unfortunately. And part of the reason why is if you're going in day in, day out, every day from 3 to 11, and you're seeing COVID cases all day, seven days a week, it'll burn you, burn you out very quickly. Whereas the more variety you build in to your day-to-day um, -day workflow, you really allow a chance to appreciate um, the beauty of all aspects of healthcare. 
Um, and, and I find that, you know, I do a good amount of work on the side with um, in consulting in terms of inventions, medical legal cases, and even like um, AI. And that gives me a lot of opportunity to pursue um, other interests and break up the course of my week. And, and whenever I go back to the ER and you know, I go back to the ringside physician or I go back to a project I'm working on, um, even, even when I go back to administrative tasks in terms of leadership and mentoring my team, um, I find it reinvigorates me and I find it to be very enjoyable. Great. Almost at every event, there's some fight where um, I have to work with the ref and say, this fight needs to stop. Um, and you'll see it where someone will get hit in the head. Yeah. Um, and they'll have a pretty hard, like, they'll be stunned. And, and as a, you'll know when they go down because once they pop right up, then you know they've been knocked out transiently. Either they're like down, they stay down and the fight ends, or they'll go down, pop right up, and then they'll think they're ready to fight. And those are the hits that are most concerning um, because they went right out, woke right back up, have no idea where they're at and are continuing. If they go down and they pause for a second, give them themselves and collect themselves, then they have a better sense of um, whether or not um, they're injured. Um, so at those times, that's when I really jump in when someone goes down, pops up, thinks they're ready, and then gets hit again. Um, and I think that gives me an opportunity to stop the fight before it gets too far. More often than not, though, you'll also know from the get-go if someone is just not prepared for the fight. Being, being a sportsman in that arena as well as a physician gives you a very unique perspective when you're uh, standing there next to the ring and watching, watching this sport because you know what it is uh, to be inside the ring as well. I have to I 100% agree with you, and I, I really admire um, fighters that continue to go um, and fight at, at, at all costs. And I, I don't have it in me anymore. Like I was talking to a good friend of mine that you know, now if I'm, if I'm losing in a fight in training, I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now. I had fun. Thank you. That was good. Enjoyable. Um, but I, I have to go home. I have to go see some patients tomorrow. Um, you know, I can't afford to have an arm dangling. And, and you'll see fighters fight so far beyond um, what, what their bodies are saying they're capable of doing that I find it's really admiring. And um, one of the things that I, I'm appalled with over and over, not appalled, I'm amazed at regularly in a medicine is how powerful your mind really can be in framing the things you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So move, moving to LifeBridge, you know, which uh, I know is one of the largest, if not the largest provider of healthcare services in Maryland. Can you talk us through some of the things you have done with your team to look at the workflow as it regards to head injuries. Is there some innovation? Is there, you, you spoke about how you know, you've been reading a lot about innovation, technology, AI. So is there something that you've done or something, even if it's simple workflow, but sure. you to focus on head injuries. What, what is it that you do special at yeah. Now, LifeBridge is um, a fantastic system to work for, and I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with them. And, um, and our EDs are, are large and busy and see a lot of patients. And, and our main campus is the Sinai Hospital of Baltimore, and that is a level two trauma center. And we have a lot of trauma coming in on a day-to-day -day basis. And really building rapid algorithms for imaging patients and knowing who to image is something that our team really built in for clinical decision support for who needs to be imaged and who should be imaged when, um, and then how quickly to image them. Namely, if someone's coming in with a headache or head trauma, um, at what criteria do you use to scan versus not scan? And by using that criteria, we're able to reduce imaging 
and actually improve outcomes. There's some criteria in the states called the PCARN rules, which is a set of rules de determining really who should get a CT scan and who should not based on the mechanism of injury. And it's mostly applicable to children. And we really implemented that at our EDs to really reduce overall utilization. And obviously I think we have a very good innovation department at LifeBridge and a very um, really strong radiology team and radiology directors that we work very closely with. Um, our radiology director, um, actually he oversees a lot at LifeBridge. His name is Dr. Dan Duran, is a good friend of mine. Um, he's also really championed working on processes to reduce utilization, improve outcome and improve quality. And I think that's extraordinarily important to make things um, better in terms of the way the hospital and the system takes care of patients. So I would really recommend any other leaders looking to have a major impact in a healthcare system um, to partner with other departments on a regular basis to focus on collaborative efforts to really um, make progress in the right direction together. Because once you're all swimming um, in the same direction, you can go uh, rowing in the same direction, you can go much further. Uh, collaboration at LifeBridge, uh, you, have, you have a great team and you've done uh, these clinical decision support algorithms. What is your assessment of the similar diagnosis or say imagine somebody with a potential stroke comes into a, a more community setting or a, a rural hospital? Do they have the same sort of algorithms? Do they have, do you think there is a need for decision support tools? What, what is sure. it in those settings? Yeah, I think the, um, the difference between um, stroke centers and not stroke centers is pretty dramatic. Um, in, thankfully, at, at my campuses in LifeBridge, if a stroke comes in, um, a team descends upon that patient. The scan is done and being read by me and the neurologist and the neuroradiologist all at the same time um, to really quickly go and determine if this patient should get TPA or if this patient's stroke is amenable to thrombectomy, um, which is a higher level of care than most places in the community. So I've worked at settings in which a patient gets a CT scan um, and the ED physician initially looks at it to determine if there's blood or a hemorrhagic bleed in the brain um, and then makes that decision as to whether or not they should give TPA by themselves. And it's an enormously um, stressful decision to make because um, TPA is known as that clot-busting medicine. Um, and it's a medication that's really fraught with medical legal risks in the States. Namely, you're liable for not giving it and giving it if there's a bad outcome. Yeah. Um, so, um, making that decision and being correct in terms of the way you initially read that scan um, can be extraordinarily risky and um, angst-provoking. Because you're reading a scan, you better be sure that there's no blood in the brain before giving the patient the strongest blood thinner we have. Um, also, typically, then you wait for a radiologist to review, typically 30 to 40 minutes or almost an hour later, to look for any evidence on the dry scan or even a scan with contrast of a large vessel occlusion. And a large vessel occlusion is like the medial cerebral artery, um, which is a large vessel that supplies a big part of the brain. So what's at stake is a pretty devastating stroke or major improvement um, that really holds a person's life in your hands. And having, a, having an hour gap before actually getting that read um, can be a very um, 
angst-provoking hour because you as the ED physician do not have the skill set um, to read CT scans that well, namely because uh, a radiology residency is five years at least, and you spend all five years learning how to effectively read imaging, um, and then you're doing this eight hours a day every day after you finish. So as an ER physician or an ED physician, you're not typically reading enough scans to attain that level of proficiency um, beyond very simple things. Right. So um, I think that is the gap that needs to be bridged in the next 10, 20 years in terms of, and 10, 20 years is a very conservative estimate, but to really make community stroke centers as good as an academic setting. Yourself. You know, 10 years is, is a pretty long. Do you see uh, an opportunity to leverage technology like AI in bridging that gap? You know, helping the ER physician get a second opinion while they're waiting for the radiologist or even helping them sure. identify which scans to escalate to the radiologist? That is the future. Um, and things that are, are very objective, like radiology scans, obviously lend themselves to AI and um, AI um, support. So things like having a scan that can do something fairly simple, like blood or not blood, can really make my first step much, much easier in that I can then see this patient is reasonable for TPA. Um, evidence or suggestion of a large vessel occlusion that can really help my decision tree, yeah. um, can really speed up care. The reason why that's more important is, say I'm in a community setting, and there's quick evidence of a large vessel occlusion within minutes, I can start transferring that patient to a stroke center where they can do thrombectomy at minute one, or even arrange transport. So by the time the radiologist actually reviews that image an hour later, um, if the patient's already there, great, they can go for therapy. And if the patient is not, and we're still arranging transport, we can either continue transport or stop transport if it's not actually there. So I, I think um, there's a lot of fear of AI replacing physicians. I, I disagree. I think AI will just make us better and make us stronger. And if you look at um, the, adapt, the adoption of technology in various fields, we've very rarely seen unemployment go up. What we've seen is quality go up and shifts of labor. Likewise, as we increase the adoption of AI in in all settings, we'll see better access to higher quality care in places that have traditionally been marginalized that have not had that level of care. You're not going to get uh, a neurology team, a neurology, a neuroradiologist in a rural hospital in you know, the outskirts of Kentucky. Um, but now we can with AI and high quality. Um, you can really bring good quality care to a larger number of patients. Very interesting perspective, and, and, and thanks for emphasizing that. You know, we in the industry often uh, are guilty, I would say, and as well as victims of this hype and this you know, talk track of AI coming to take over and replace radiologists or replace care. Uh, but I, I love the way you put it that you know it's in in some ways bridging the skill gap, which is not mm -hmm. distributed anywhere in the country, whether it's United States or even if when we look at it at a global scale. There are opportunities yeah, to supplement and there are opportunities to objectively give data to help, as you said, 
uh, emergency physician in a community hospital or even in an urban setting uh, to make those decisions okay. faster. Uh, great. So, you know, just making that decision of uh, bleed, no bleed, or lost, large vessel occlusion is, is one of the key things. What are some of the other things you look for in a head trauma injury, which an AI solution or where you would prefer a decision support tool? Are there any sure. other conditions or any other findings that are critical and you think are, are not as common perhaps to get missed? So a big thing is progression and bleed size. Um, that's also something fairly important that, um, that we as ED physicians kind of um, wing, and I, should, I use the term wing colloquially in terms of um, we look at scans, it looks a little bigger, it's a little small, it's the same size. Um, that's really important in terms of if someone falls and has a small bleed, our typical workflow is to do a repeat scan in six hours and make that assessment as to whether or not that patient is improving, getting worse, or um, staying the same. And while clinically we're seeing that patient, um, and we can typically make that assumption based on how they're responding or how their symptoms are progressing, um, that's not always the case. And sometimes someone's clinical presentation can lag behind the radiologic presentation significantly. Um, so I, I think having a tool to help make that distinction can be very helpful. Um, also on certain types of facial fractures, identification of those injuries quickly um, can really be helpful as well. And that include, that's included in your head CT because you'll frequently see your orbits. And having an idea of um, what's there um, really helps add to our, our skill set. Um, a, a common saying in medicine is the most missed fracture is the second fracture, which means if someone falls and hits their head here, um, I'm going to worry about a brain injury here. So I'm going to be focusing on the temporal bone, the parietal bone, look at the brain, and I may miss an orbital fracture because I'm so anchored and focused on the temporal bone and looking at where I see the injury that I'm not going to pick up the rest. And having an empiric way of looking at every scan the same way that's built into an algorithm can help minimize that miss. Likewise, uh, and typically we'll find that radiologists and ED physicians may miss incidental findings. So things that are not relevant to specifically why the patient came, but it's enormously important in terms of the outcome for that patient's life. I'm, I'm reminded there was a, a conversation I was having with another physician in the States who told me, you know, you don't, and he, this person is a radiologist, but was honest enough to tell me, you know, even when you're reviewing images, you actually don't find what's there. You find what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, so that, that's exactly it correct. Speaks to, it speaks to, you know, kind of the unconscious bias, if you want to call it, or the fact that you know there is an injury on this side, you're primarily trying to ascertain the fractures here or, or primarily trying to ascertain the presence or absence of blood and maybe other incidental findings, uh, like you said, a mass or a midline shift or something else, uh, which, which may be still equally critical for the patient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course. I, I think this was a very interesting conversation where... Uh, you can re-emphasize how we can look at adoption of AI in, in different clinical settings and the value it'll add. Uh, maybe some last thoughts. You, you spoke about 10 years, but five years from now, what, what, how do you see AI impacting your workflow and your shifts at, at LifeBridge or other technologies, if not AI? 
Sure. Um, I, I think that the, the skill set of physicians is only going to get better in terms of the speed and effectiveness that we make diagnoses. And that allows us to move our patients through the system in a safer and faster way. Um, in terms of like imaging, plain film, CTs, the thought of waiting for results um, in, the, in an emergent setting may go away. And that can really speed throughput time. So I, I think the major benefit we're going to see is we'll be able to take care of a larger number of patients faster because we can start moving patients in the right direction based on the rapid AI read or rapid suggestions by AI and move them through the system. Um, in terms of, you know, yeah, sure, we need to have the final read from the radiologist, the confirmatory study. Um, but similar to the advancement of ED ultrasound by an ED physician, um, you're gonna have AI where, where that um, sped up the actual time to diagnosis. You're gonna have the same thing happen in other diagnoses as well, because AI is gonna make me more effective. Um, and then you'll also see an increase or reduction in utilization based on what studies are meant to be followed up with, what studies um, do not need to be done based on the clinical presentation and integration of AI into the medical decision-making. Um, and you'll see a lot of that going forward. And I'm really excited about the chance to be a better physician because you have a better set of tools. Um, you know, everyone knows you can try and have a steak with your hands, but if you had a knife and fork, it makes it much easier. Um, and I, I think that lends itself to um, taking care of patients too. And you're only as good as the tools you have. So thank you for having me. Great. No, thank you, Dr. Neil. Wish you have a great day, safe day, and uh, wonderful talking to you.